just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. And today we're making some Women with Balls history because we're having a previous guest back on the podcast. Now, when I spoke to her last year, this guest was serving as Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Fast forward a year and Liz Truss is now in a Boris Johnson government as International Trade Secretary. And this month she added the Women and Equalities brief to her work. On women's equality, Truss has previously said... Destiny's Child had it right when they celebrated all the honeys making money. And she's also said that women should not be squeamish about pay. So we will touch on those topics more. But for now, thank you very much for joining us today, Liz. Great to be on the show, Katie. I should point out that I think a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest here who was your predecessor as the Women Equalities Brief, Amber Rudd. She went on to obviously resign from post, but hopefully we won't have such a need to put out the podcast quickly in terms of your own position <laughs> absolutely Katie <laughs> now before we get on to women equalities I thought we'd best to talk about your role as international trade secretary been there obviously in post since Boris Johnson formed his government but you've been on several trips we previously I've flown went- around the world and back again Katie in the last week and a half <laughs> we went to Boohoo together in Manchester to interview your chief secretary to the treasury would you say your trips are now a bit more glamorous than that there's nothing more glamorous than Manchester let's be honest but yeah, and, and we're going back for a Tory conference we are but Boohoo's a great example of a British company that is doing well across the world and the great opportunity as trade secretary is to be able to support those fantastic businesses and get their products out uh, much further and wider than they have been before and of course Manchester is a great trading city it grew up on trade through things like the cotton industry so we've got a big opportunity as I am the first I will be the first person in Britain to strike trade deals for 45 years as we leave the EU, we've got a big opportunity to revive our trading instincts. I think that's fantastic. And you're very optimistic about the prospect of trade deals. How, what kind of pace... I'm optimistic and realistic, Katie. No unicorns. How quickly do you think we're going to start seeing trade deals signed in terms of, I mean, you've been in New Zealand recently, you've been in Japan, Australia, we'll get on to New York. In those conversations, what is the timescale of a trade deal? Clearly, as soon as we leave the EU, there is a big opportunity to strike trade deals with our close friends across the world. And I've specifically chosen these countries, which are major economies in the case of Japan, the US and Australia, but also countries which share our values, free market democracies, because I think it's important that we set standards and that we have a similar approach in terms of trade, in terms of our belief in property rights, rule of law, but also free enterprise. And I think we could strike some of those deals within months. I think there's a real appetite in those countries. You know, they've seen Britain as part of Europe for 40 odd years. They haven't had the opportunity to have us at the table. And there is real excitement about the potential of new deals. 
And there's been a lot in the papers, even before you took on the role, about what the UK has to potentially give up or put on the table to agree trade deals. You represent a constituency which has uh, agricultural areas in it, farming. As an, do you think that that's something that is going to feature? Because there are some concerns, such as today, you know, there's a warning that one in four rural businesses could face bankruptcy in a no-deal Brexit. Farmers are worried that they could see cheaper goods flood the market and sell less. Do, do you think some people want a more protectionist, I suppose, approach on trade deals on, on those areas? But I was wondering what your positioning was. Well, I see trade as a win-win for all the countries involved. You know, we're only going to do a deal if it's good for Britain and it's good for the country we are working with. But take my farmers in southwest Norfolk. We're incredibly competitive. The standards of British agriculture are extremely high. We're in areas like arable, in areas like pig farming. We do a great job. I famously once made a speech about pork exports to China, but the fact is that pigs from the UK are being exported to China now because we produce very, very high standards of pork. And we can compete. You know, we are a great country. We have very good farmers. We have some of the best agri-tech in the world. We can compete and we can sell our products on the international markets. We talked about Boohoo. Our fashion industry is second to none. People want British products. I was over in Sydney last week being photographed by Sydney Bridge on a Brompton bicycle. Yeah, you know, these are Jack. with the Union Jack umbrella. It was the only day in Sydney it was rained for the last month. It's just my luck. My first ever visit to Australia is raining. But those Brompton bicycles, they are the UK's largest bicycle manufacturer. People want those bikes in Sydney. We should have confidence that people want to buy British products across the world. And the problem is, at the moment, there are tariffs you know, on some of these products. There are barriers to entry. So the Americans cannot buy Welsh lamb at the moment, even though they're the second biggest importer by value of lamb in the world. Wouldn't it be brilliant to get that Welsh lamb on American tables? You touched on it there, your famous pork um, exports, and there was also cheese, That was, which is a disgrace if you look at the, the exports, exports. since that speech have gone up, Katie. I hope you know that. Now that you have the role of International Trade Secretary, I was thinking, in a way, it feels that perhaps it's your destiny, um, <laughs> given that when you were at DEFA, you spoke so passionately about, about these issues. Do you think Boris Johnson had that in mind? <laughs> I think he might have had that in mind. He did mention it to me when he appointed me for the job. Oh, what so. did he say? I can't remember the exact words, but he did mention uh, my speech in which I passionately advocated the brilliance of British food products and the fact that more people across the world want to buy them. And of course, they want to buy our services like financial services, insurance. They want to buy our brilliant you know, TV programmes, you know, whether it's Love Island or Downton Abbey, they're lapping it up. And you've been in New York recently and you were in a meeting with Boris Johnson and the president, Donald Trump. How was that? It was an incredibly positive meeting. I mean, we've been talking about the appetite to strike trade deals and work more closely with the UK. And the US is, you know, the president is very keen to move that forward. So is my counterpart, Bob Lighthizer. And I think there are win-wins for us in that type of agreement. And just a final thing on that, I just wondered, I mean, there's been lots of criticism of the withdrawal agreement. We know that Boris Johnson is renegotiating it, in his view, it is, is dead in many respects. 
But if, say, he removes the backstop, I was wondering, do you think um, there are more opportunities perhaps in a no-deal setting where you have less restraints on the UK's relationship for making these deals with third countries than if you have what's currently being proposed in that agreement? So deal or no deal, Boris Johnson has been unequivocal that we are leaving the EU regulatory setup, that we're not going to be part of the customs union or the single market. So that will mean the freedom to strike trade deals, to get deals of mutual recognition. We never want to go back to the days of harmonising with some other country's regulatory system. This is going to be about mutual recognition, based with the EU in a Canada-style trade deal, similar to what they've got with Canada, but also with countries like the US, Australia, Japan. And the important thing for me as Trade Secretary is the Prime Minister has said we're going to have that regulatory freedom to strike those deals. So deal or no deal, we're going to get on with this. Uh, now, moving on to your other brief, Women and Equalities, you were the 10th person to be appointed to the brief since 2010. You've been in government for a fair chunk of that time. Do you think that's a long time coming? Well, I think it's a great moment to be doing the job. I think there's never been a better time to be a woman in Britain. I think I can bring positivity and ambition to the job. And you know, I'm very much... I would describe myself as a destiny's child feminist. You know, I want, I love being female. I think there are great opportunities for women. I want women to be ambitious about what they can achieve. And I don't think that comes at the expense of men. I think it's beneficial for everybody in society to feel that they've got a shot uh, at doing things. And we need to focus on where the opportunities lie and also how good Britain is for, you know, individual liberty, the freedom to be who you want to be, regardless of your gender or your sexuality. We are a very open, exciting, forward-leaning country, and I want to project that across the world. One of the things Theresa May did when she was Prime Minister was this gender pay, also getting companies to publish gender pay differences. But it did draw some criticism, some of the data was a bit clumsy because it didn't go into specific positions and you ended up with a point where you could say a company had you know gender pay inequality but when you look closer perhaps a, a lingerie company for example just hires more women because on the shop floor that's what people like prefer and vice versa with some more male dominated industries do you think something like that is positive or do you think that they could improve it well i think the key is that we need to be tough on the causes of the gender pay gap and the one of the biggest issues is occupational segregation and a lot of that goes back to what girls tend to take at school what areas they're encouraged to study so maths is the classic example that fewer girls are studying maths to a later stage in life we know that maths is positively correlated with you're less likely to be unemployed you're more likely to be in a high-earning job. So what I want to focus on in the role is making sure that from the get-go, girls are aware of that, they've got the opportunities to do that, they're being encouraged to study areas where it's going to help their future prospects. Because if you don't understand mathematics, you don't understand things like finance, economics it's very hard to have control of your own life. And that, to me, feeds into lots of other issues. So 
what we need to do is make sure that we are giving girls that equal capability from a young age and then give people the freedom to make their own choices. So I see it as really focusing on the causes of, you know, how can we help girls become confident, ambitious, able to make their own decisions and choices. And the other part of the brief, uh, which has had a lot of attention in the press, is uh, touched on trans rights and how that should be factored into government policy on various issues. Um, some of your colleagues have spoken quite vocally about concerns about whether, you know, how people self-identify, particularly in schools, at what point, you know, a student should be able to say, you know, they think that actually they're a boy. And I was wondering, what kind of work or approach do you plan to take with that? Well, these are fairly early days in the job, of course, and I'm looking at these issues very closely. But my fundamental view is that, you know, we should give adults full freedom to decide how they want to live their lives. They should not be faced with discrimination. They should be able to have the freedom to live a full and happy life and not face abuse or attacks. And that's incredibly important. However, I do think when children are growing up, when they're developing those decision-making capabilities, then we do have a role in making sure that you know, the full implications of decisions are understood, that children are protected from you know, harm. So uh, those, are, those are things to be you know, balanced up. But fundamentally, my view is that adults, free adults, should be able to have, you know, live a full life. And I think Britain has led the way in the world and I remember how far we've come I was at school in the 80s and 90s we had section 28 in place you you couldn't talk about being gay in school and at the time we thought that was appalling I remember questioning teachers on why why should it be right that somebody who is gay is considered somehow so shameful that you couldn't even talk about that and just think of the huge moves we've made supporting equal marriage, uh, you know, a real, a real change in tone. And we're now leading the world. I was very proud to be out in Tokyo speaking at the Global Equality Caucus and talking how about some of those freedoms we've brought, brought forward in Britain, we can do that more broadly uh, with Nick Herbert, who's leading that. So, yes, we need to look at all of these issues in detail make make sure people are treated fairly but fundamentally it's 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 an issue very close to my heart that we need to treat people as individuals and not stereotype them according to whether or not they're a woman whether they're straight or gay what race they are what background they come from and then I suppose looking on for your brief you have conservative party conference coming up and you're making an appearance at GAY I am yeah (laughs) What is that? It's one of the highlights of my uh, conference diary. (laughs) I notice it's also the Spectator Party, Katie. This is a real clash. uh, It's the same night, yeah. Uh, But also, just in conference in general, it feels the party is quite. We have Parliament sitting. MPs have refused to give you a conference recess. So there's some reports that you might be being ferried up and down from Manchester. 
I was like, what do you make of the current situation in Parliament? Because uh, we've seen clearly the Supreme Court judgment this week, which meant that MPs returned. And then you add to that the fact that we have a situation where the debate seems to have soured on both sides. And we are now having a row about language that started when, I think it was on Wednesday night in the chamber when you had Paul the Sheriff, the Labour MP, suggest that Boris Johnson should stop using words like surrender because it could basically put the safety of MPs at risk. She invoked the memory of Joe Cox, the Labour MP who was murdered. Do you think words like surrender are appropriate? Well, first of all, I think the situation in Parliament is ludicrous and we need a general election. Clearly, Parliament is not working. It's not achieving anything. We had the ludicrous situation this week of being recalled to Parliament and then Parliament not actually doing anything. We need an election. That is the only way we are going to get MPs that represent what people voted for and what what they want to do. Uh, As to this issue of language, I think it's an absolute cheek by the Labour Party who have said all kinds of things. I mean, John McDonald talking about lynching uh, a member of the Cabinet. uh, To suddenly start saying that words like surrender, which are a perfectly reasonable part of the English language, should be banned... In general, I'm in favour of free speech anyway, and I don't think we should be seeking to limit language. Because when you seek to limit language, what you're basically saying to people is your views are unacceptable. And one of the reasons that we've got to this stage in Britain where political debate has become so volatile is that some people's views have been swept under the carpet and they've been told that they're unacceptable. And that has created a lot of anger and frustration. And we're now seeing a genuine debate in Britain taking place and a robust debate taking place. And people who say this is all terrible and we've never seen anything like it. I remember politics when I was growing up in the 1980s. Some of it was quite extreme. You know, you had the sort of the militant types. You had, you know, big activists. You know, my mother was a member of the CND. I mean, some of the things they were saying about Margaret Thatcher on those CND marches, it would not pass muster with the politically correct thought police that seem to dominate in British society today. So I think we do need to allow people to express themselves. Of course, you know, there are sensitivities. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, as an MP, as a female MP myself, you know, there are concerns about safety and you know, that is a worry. But I really don't like this idea that somehow certain words are unacceptable and they're unacceptable for Tories to say but they're not unacceptable for the Labour Party to say and what is at the heart of that is the idea that the left are somehow morally superior that they somehow care more than we do and I think we're right to challenge that there's too much there's been too much apology for being conservative for believing in capitalism free markets personal freedom Those are things I believe in. I'm proud to believe in them. I think they're intensely humane. I think they result in a better and more moral society. And I just don't accept this idea that people on the left are more caring and more compassionate than conservatives. And one of the things I really liked going over to Australia and seeing, and I met Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, a.k.a. ScoMo, is that the Australian Liberals are completely unapologetic. That's why he won that election. He was proud you know, to be in favour of low taxes. He was proud to be in favour of personal responsibility. And that's what we've got to get back to. And I really think 
Boris is driving that agenda of saying, actually, we're not going to apologise for who we are anymore. Yeah, because lots of people would say the current tone coming from number 10 is aggressive. They think, you know, this idea of Brexit by any means necessary. But I suppose and the Theresa May's government was struck for, often to me at least, seemed like it didn't know exactly what it wanted its message to be. It would say something and then it would second guess itself, be a bit apologetic. Are you more comfortable with the tone of this government? You're right to use the word unapologetic. That's what Boris is. He's not going to say sorry for what he is and what he represents. And it's why people like him. It's why when he meets people across the country, they want to talk to him, they want to have photos taken with him because they know what Boris believes in. And one really important thing is he believes in Britain. He doesn't believe our best days are behind us and we somehow need to just you know, kowtow to other countries and know our place. He doesn't believe that at all. He believes that we can, you know, we can be confident, we can do, do better, that there are exciting opportunities. And that is what the public want to hear. So I do agree. I think there was too much splitting the difference. There was too much trying to appease people. And I like the tone of being confident and assertive and saying, this is the type of Britain we want to live in. And we're prepared to go out there and say that. And just on the safety of MPs, um, something you touched on. I mean, we've had several uh, female MPs particularly come out this week and bring it into that language debate saying, we've had panic buttons installed in our flats, we get threats, someone's tried to come into my office. Have, have you experienced anything like that? I mean, I, look, I, it, 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 there's no doubt that being a public figure, um, being an MP, is, you know, there are there are issues with safety and, you know, it, Parliament has much improved its its safety procedures. These are issues that have been faced for a number of years. If you remember, there was a terrible attack on Stephen Timms. You know, in the 1980s, you had the Brighton bombing, you know, serious threats from terrorism. So this has been a feature, uh, you know, an unwanted and not pleasant feature of political life for some time, not just in Britain, by the way, right across the world. And I think it's right that MPs have proper protection and female MPs in particular feel safe. And, you know, I've been vocal in saying both the parliamentary authorities and the government authorities should be in place. But I don't, this is not something that's just popped up this year or last year. This has been a feature for a very long time. And what you're saying is you don't think it should be used to shut down a debate. Absolutely. I think that it's important that we have robust, honest debate. And we've just been through a long period of managerialism where the public would often say, well, we can't tell the difference between you and the Labour Party. It was about who will spend slightly more on this or that or who can manage the economy better. And I feel that, you know, similarly to what the country went through in 1979, there is, a, there is an itch, there is a 40-year itch of saying we want something really different. We do want to change uh, the way Britain is, the way Britain's perceived in the world, our attitude. And that came through. That was, to me, a message from the Brexit referendum is people weren't happy with the status quo. They wanted to shake things up. And there was very low political participation before that. People weren't turning out in elections and the turnout on Brexit was massive. 
So we have seen a, people do want something different and something new. Um, so a few quick questions to end the podcast. And the first, I think I might know the answer, which is um, <laughs> sh- should Jeffrey Cox go back to the Commons and apologise for calling MPs turkeys as Labour have demanded of him? No. If you remember, I think Nye Bevan said that the Conservatives were lower than vermin. This is a tradition of parliamentary debate over the years. Is Boris Johnson a populist? Boris is popular, which is very important. He's in touch with what people want. He knows that they want to be proud of our country and he's delivering that. Is that populism? Well, whatever you call it, I think it's really important. The idea that somehow it's bad to actually listen to what people think and it's bad to do what the public want is not democracy. We have a host of Tory rebels no longer in the party currently. They've had the whip withdrawn. And there's some talk that some of them want to go back in. I was wondering, do you think uh, these MPs should be allowed back in? And, and if so, what do you think is it they need to do to kind of prove themselves back to being in the Conservative Party? It's a matter for the chief whip, which, which MPs have the whip. But they did vote against the government on an absolutely crucial issue, which was a confidence-style vote. And we need to have confidence that MPs that stand for the party out the election are going to deliver what was on our manifesto. I'll see if I can get away with this penultimate question. Theresa May or Boris Johnson? (laughs) Boris. And finally, a question we're asking all our guests now, which is, what have you changed your mind on most in the last year? You can have a few seconds to think about it if it helps. I am a very stubborn person, so I don't really change my mind that much. But probably the biggest thing that just in the last few weeks, I have, I've never been to Australia before, and I was hugely impressed by the country. And I like Australia, but I now feel that there is a real opportunity to build closer alliances with countries that we've had historic connections with and have perhaps slightly lost touch with over the past 40 years that we've been with the EU. So I think it's opened, I've opened my eyes more to the opportunities across the rest of the world. And I'm going to break my own promise there and sneak one in. And does that relationship involve freedom of movement? <laughs> what it involves, and this is not freedom of movement EU style, what it involves, though, is, you know, it used to be the case that young Australians would come to Britain as a rite of passage and experience our country. And that would be opportunities, too, for young Britons to go to Australia. And I would like to see those types of links restored so that we become closer with our like minded allies right across the world. Thank you, Liz, and thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.